0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Coming up on Primetime Politics, selling Canada to Americans.
1: You know who makes some of the cleanest steel in the world? Workers in Canada.
0: The Prime Minister addresses the council on foreign relations in New York touting this country's green economy and critical minerals. But is Justin Trudeau overpromising on industries still in development? We'll speak to our journalist panel and get their thoughts on Harjit Sajjan and his revelation to the immigration committee saying he was not checking emails when Kandahar fell. Plus After several violent attacks across the country, what will it take to make public transit safe again? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We begin in New York City, where the Prime Minister spent another day, this time around, addressing the Council on Foreign Relations. For Justin Trudeau, it was a chance to build on the momentum of Joe Biden's Ottawa visit and to sell Canada as a reliable partner with products and resources to offer to a world in transition towards a greener economy.
1: The lithium produced in Canada is going to be more expensive because we don't use slave labour. Because we put forward environmental as something we actually expect to, 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 to be abided by. Because um, we count on working with, in partnership with indigenous peoples, paying fair living wages, and expecting security and safety standards. Um, the world needs to decide and are still in the process of deciding is whether or not we're actually going to value the things we value throughout our supply chains.
0: Well, to talk about the Prime Minister's address, we're now joined by this week's journalists panel. Tonda McCharles is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Stephanie Taylor is a reporter with the Canadian Press. And Joelle Denis-Belavance is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. Hello to the three of you.
2: Hi there. Hi. see you.
0: So here we have the Prime Minister uh, in New York, as we say, really pushing uh, Canada's environmental credentials. uh, Critical minerals, a clean electricity grid... And that is what the government is hoping to achieve, and I I take that. But, you know, I wonder, when you talk about critical minerals, when you talk about the clean energy grid, there's still a lot of work to be done on both in order to achieve the government targets. Massive. Massive. So is the government, is the prime minister putting the cart before the horse trying to sell this to New York?
3: Well, look, let's say it's aspirational. It's an aspirational agenda on all of those fronts. Um, The government is prepared to put a lot of money in it, but even its own timelines to achieve... You know, that kind of uh, successful investment in those areas and development of a critical minerals industry in this country is again, but worth $80 billion over the next 11 years. Right. So he's down there selling it. um, And yes, a little bit putting the cart. Before the horse, because some of those projects, some of the the areas they want to develop are long-term projects where they haven't got the infrastructure even to get these critical minerals out of the ground mm-hmm. and onto a rail car or a truck or, or a ship and out of northern Ontario, for example, where, you know, Ring of Fire encompasses a lot of those mm-hmm. mineral developments. So, yeah, it's aspirational. It's ambitious, but, you know, um, we're not there yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, you say ring of fire, and I have a, a thought on that. But first, I want to talk to you, Joe denis because, again, here's the prime minister selling these industries, these resources, that we've yet to really figure out how that's going to work. Is there a fear of disappointing our partners in this?
4: Well, there is, because the government is uh, known for not approving projects very quickly. And that's one of the uh, main criticisms that have been addressed to the government. But I think Mr. Trudeau is still doing something sort of a... a selling uh, job, selling Canada to the rest of the world, reminding uh, all those investors that Canada does exist because I was told that nobody wakes up in the morning outside of Canada thinking of Canada. And so you have to remind them every time that Canada exists and for the right reason, for our environment policies, for clean energy, but also access to critical minerals. And there's a race right now around the globe for investment in this area. So you you have to make sure that Canada uh, raises its hand, said, we do exist and we have lots of that, so come and invest in Canada. So it's part of the job of selling, but there is an obligation of results on the part of the government to approve projects quickly. And a lot of the ministers who are in charge of economic portfolios are aware of that. Christophe Freeland, the finance minister, is aware of that. Jonathan Wilkinson as well, and François-Philippe Champagne. And they work uh, together in a semi-formal way, if I may say, to try to make sure that we... They get to approve those uh, projects for critical mineral in a more rapid manner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Stephanie, what do you think of the challenge versus what essentially is the cell job in New York right now?
2: I mean, Jonathan Wilkinson has acknowledged it takes too long to actually get a mine up and running mm-hmm. in this country, at least at least a decade. Yeah. So as you say, this is very aspirational, uh, and there's still a lot more homework that needs to be done. I think this announcement, it's very clearly Trudeau is still riding the victory lap off of landing the Volkswagen <laughs> deal. But experts from Canada, elsewhere, the United States all agree that the government has to answer the regulatory questions of not just approvals, but actually getting it built and talking about the ring of fire. Yes, some First Nations are in favour of it, but some First Nations are not in favour of it. And this is a government that also values reconciliation. And it has since day one, and it says it continues to. So how is it going to accomplish that? And it's frankly not even a problem. I mean, it's a problem because the Liberals are in power. But any government in Canada Mm -hmm. is going to have to contend with this and contend with potential court cases. And how are investors going to deal with that when they've looked at what happened with Trans Mountain Pipeline the last time a project tried to get built and it was tied in court and the government had to step in. So there's a lot more homework the government needs to do after it's done its victory lap.
0: Yeah, it's, and it's interesting because you both mentioned the Ring of Fire. And quite frankly, we've been talking about the Ring of Fire in some form for for so long now for decades at this years, point 30 yeah, years? exactly and, and it, to your point there's not even a road to go get up there mm-hmm. at this moment in time so so talk to me about what you're hearing amongst Ottawa officials amongst ministers and government people uh, about that challenge and how they intend to tackle it
3: Well, I've asked that question of Minister Wilkinson and uh, talked to him about that, but I don't hear actually a concerted plan. And maybe they have one and they're not telling us. There's lots of times when they've got work behind the scenes going on. They don't tell us. They don't Mm. see fit to let Canadians in on, for example, their strategy of how to secure the Volkswagen investment until, bang, they drop it on the table that day. Um, I can only assume that both the provincial government and the federal government are doing some kind of outreach work with the various indigenous communities and leaders in those areas. but. You know, Bob Ray, when he left as interim liberal leader before he was appointed to uh, the embassy in New York or the mission to the UN in New York, uh, was involved very much in trying to push that development along and mm-hmm. the talks and the consultations with the indigenous leaders there. Um, but the last time I talked to leaders up in that area, there was there was still no, uh, it, no sense of urgency uh, around talking to them and um, compelling talks forward. But you know, to be honest, that was a little while ago, so I don't know where it stands now, but it can't move forward unless they're engaged. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, the uh, Premier of Ontario is, will be push- has been pushing a little bit more lately because of the Volkswagen announcement and mm-hmm. also that Canada wants to be able to build uh, electric car from the batteries up, you know, assembling it. And yeah. so he's been pushing it. and. The fact that he's got a great working relationship with M. Trudeau probably will get more attention from Ottawa. But I would say that uh, on, on, on Ottawa's radar, it's been far away. They've been dealing with other issues. And there's also some dilemma facing the government because there is a, an environment minister named Stephen Guilbeault who is, you know, his reputation is at stake on many fronts because of economic development, but also decisions that may affect the environment. And on this front, he may be, you know, more reluctant to... Uh, you know um be mm-hmm. on on board on that decision. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: well, listen, let's let's leave this topic right now. Let's leave uh, Justin Trudeau New York, move on to <laughs> Alexandre Trudeau uh, back here in Canada because Alexandre Trudeau is making news as well. He apparently wants to testify next week so that he can defend the foundation that bears his father's name. But this week, we're hearing from Pascal Fournier. She is the, a past president of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. And she says past officials misled the Canadian public because of identifying that $140,000 donation donation as coming from business uh, rather not identifying it as a donation coming from businessmen from China it was rather identified as a Canadian donation take
5: a listen I immediately started to ask questions about you know why is it that we would have two receipts that are so different that one is seems to be international with money that seems to come from China, and another one with an address in Quebec. Uh, and, uh, and I looked with, uh, my, with the CFO, Caroline Lin, who was working with me on, on that file. We, we tried to understand what was sent uh, to the government.
0: Okay. Uh, Stephanie, I'll get you to start us out here. How troubling is it to see a recent president essentially distance herself from the foundation with which she was working?
2: This is a foundation that is in damage control. They are in crisis. And I think for any Canadian that is following this story, and I think it's worth saying, it's a confusing story. There's a yes. lots of twists and turns and to keep up with it. And if you're not from Ontario or Quebec, you might even know not even know what the Trudeau <laughs> Foundation is or what it really does, that it offers scholarships. But I think any Canadian watching this testimony, if there were watching testimony today, they're seeing a lot of finger pointing and they're seeing a lot of how is this going to be solved and who is responsible and, and, and again, that kind of damage control. So it's after this testimony, it is hard to see how things are getting any better for the foundation as it still tries to, as you say, with, with Mr. Trudeau wanting to appear, it's kind of salvage that reputation where it still finds itself in this political epicenter of a, of a fight of who knew what, when, and where. Well, I mean, I think to a certain
3: extent mm-hmm. what, um, uh, Alexandre Trudeau wants to testify about is the kind of good work the foundation does and mm-hmm. and salvage its reputation, but that's almost beside the point yep. right now to the political debate over you know the the source of the money was there a deliberate effort to identify it or not misidentify it uh, and not reveal its actual origins and to what extent people were misled around that and so that's the political mm-hmm. question and uh, honestly I'm not sure if uh, Alexandre Trudeau is going to shed light on that or if he's going to to find himself sort of at the crosshairs of an attack on he, he and his brother and his family name and how he rises to that.
0: Well, I, I got to say, as well. well, you know, it baited, but he also said, he said this in in, in a newspaper article, right, an interview. Which is why I'm staring at you. But Burger Gardens, great paper. So so he, he essentially says that he wants to testify. I don't know if he realized or, or he realized it would be the ethics committee that would reach out and say, yeah, come speak with us because mm-hmm. a far different committee than, than the procedures committee
3: Chared by the conservatives. absolutely yeah. the key
0: part
4: of that so yeah. so what do you make of all that well it's um, Pascal Fournier I think pointed out an issue of governance and proper governance in the face of uh, the public uh, it's accountability towards uh, the National Revenue Agency and also the main uh, provider of fund uh, innovation uh, industry and and science department um, Mr. Trudeau, the Alexandre Trudeau, might be on the hot seat because he's the one who signed the contract for the donation with, you know, uh, whoever <laughs> signed it on the other end of it, so we don't know. Mm-hmm. So he's the one who signed it, and Pascal Fournier was saying that he did not have the authority to sign that. So... That may bring that's a lot solution, of questions yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, at that committee, and I'm sure that yes, he's ready to testify, but he should be ready for to face some tough questions on the part of the Québécois, the conservative, and the NEP as well. Yeah, if he still shows up, because I think that's the other thing we have to watch out for. Also, but
3: they will compel his yeah. appearance. And so, I mean, there's no, now that he's already offered to, it's going to be pretty hard for him to sidestep that. One
4: point that uh, I think is worth mentioning is that his testimony will be on the eve of the Liberal Convention in Ottawa. So Mm -hmm. will that drag the, you know, uh, the bad publicity until the... Uh, convention that remains to be seen but it, there's a danger there yeah we're watching and of course luckily for us we're covering the convention as well <laughs> but listen
0: uh before we're completely out of time i want to move on to another topic uh harjit Sajjan, because he did give a testimony this week to the commons immigration committee and that committee had questions about travel documents that were issued to afghans trying to come to canada during the fall of kandahar now they were not issued by the regular officials instead it was issued by senator marilou McFedrin. And Minister Sajjan, who was defence minister at the time, says he was not aware this was happening because he was not checking his emails. Take a listen.
5: Um, Do you personally monitor your parliamentary, uh, your personal parliamentary email account, otherwise known as the P-9s?
0: Uh, yes, I do.
5: Did you monitor those that account between August and September 2020? I can tell you that
0: time I was not looking at emails di- uh, di- during the So you
5: time. did not monitor your personal email account at that time, between the, August if, and September 2021? Madam Chair, if
0: I can answer the whole question. That time the, the situation was so dire that we had to stay focused, and the communication at that time was done very quickly. I had no time right now to be looking at emails. I was focused on Thank the briefings, you. which is... Okay, so he says given the crisis at the moment, he had no time to check the emails. What do you make of that?
4: That looks, sounds pretty uh, much like a lame excuse, not uh, looking at your uh, personal emails. You know, that's the first thing that I check in the morning, and I'm assuming a cabinet minister, uh, having his uh, responsibility, would do the utmost to do, check his uh, personal emails at atomic crisis, because the prime minister probably could send him an email on his P9, so uh, would that mean they wouldn't read those emails? It just shows that Mr. Sajani is again in trouble.
3: Let's let's explain to people though even the context here. It was uh, he's right. It was a chaotic time. It was chaotic because the government had failed to foresee the fall of the Taliban and the need to evacuate people out of Afghanistan. Not just calling an election
4: that day. And they called the
3: election. Well, they scrambled two days ahead of the election to Mm -hmm. do some measures to help, and then they called the election. And then for the first ten days of that campaign, if you you'll remember, it was dominated by. Afghanistan. And so for the minister in charge of the evacuation not to be reading emails is a dereliction of duty. But even if he were reading his emails or weren't reading his emails, he had a chief of staff, he had staff, he had a deputy minister, he had people advising him. And it turns out, as we've reported, his chief of staff was involved in facilitating the exit of some people out of Afghanistan by providing letters exit letters, facilitate, travel facilitation letters that he got from a global affairs political colleague. So so what's going on? There, this whole story raises not just legal questions of whether or not it is a valid letter and that Canada should honor it in some respect to those Afghans who were left behind or some that got out and remained in Albania. I reported this week it was FIFA was trying to help women soccer players out of Afghanistan. Some of them are still stranded. Some of them are in Afghanistan, some are still stranded in Albania and other countries. Michelle Rempel-Garner's got a family who she's trying to help, who got one of these letters. Mm-hmm. We don't know how, but she got, he, that family got one of those letters mm-hmm. and they only made it to the US. So there's legal questions around what does Canada owe these people, given the source of these letters. And then there are political and moral questions. What is, what do we, what is our obligation, even if they're deemed not to be official government documents, as the government is claiming, um, they're identical to the uh, official documents that were being handed out mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Immigration and Global Affairs. So it's a, it's, it's a problem, and it's a problem going forward because actually, you know, this, the senator, maybe the senator was acting in good faith, but really, like, is that the senator's role as well? Mm-hmm. So there are many, many questions around.
0: Yeah, well, and I think one of the questions also has to be, what is the future of Harjit Sachin in cabinet?
2: He was appointed back in cabinet after the 2021 election and we remember up until then he was in charge of national defense as it handled you know headline after headline about mishandled sexual misconduct allegations like and, and there were questions then and he found himself back in cabinet to Tonda's point, ministers are busy people, but that is why they have staff, that is why they have offices, that is why they have infrastructure and resources. And there is an expectation when you are appointed to cabinet to stay on top of your files, whether that's checking your emails, your texts, whatever it may be. And this does raise questions going back to that election where, as you say, Trudeau was hammered for almost 10 days straight the start of the campaign of how can you be doing this? How can you say you're on top of the evacuation from Afghanistan while also campaigning for re-election? And the fact that the minister is saying I was too busy to check emails, bubbles up those questions again of how seriously was, not seriously, but was Canada impeded in any way, shape, or form because it was distracted by an election campaign. Now, the Liberals have obviously said that's not the case, but this kind of brings all of those questions bubbling back up. And it does bring those questions up uh, about this minister, but we've seen this songbook with him before.
0: Okay, well, we watch closely, and sadly, we're out of time, but really appreciate the discussion. Tanya McCharles with the Toronto Star, Stephanie Taylor with Canadian Press, and Jean Denis-Belibans with the great paper, La <laughs> Presse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the time. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's take a look at some of the other stories making headlines, beginning with Sudan. Two Canadian evacuation flights were cancelled Friday morning, one because of a mechanical issue. The other cancelled after a Turkish plane came under fire in Khartoum. Canadian officials say more flights are planned, but that time is running short. This as fighting continues between rival military factions. Here's what the defence minister had to say about the challenges on the ground.
1: The terrain at the airport is very rough and it requires a continual assessment by our officials together with our allies that planes can safely take off.
0: The strike by federal workers is well into its second week now and their union says the government has tabled a new offer for 120,000 Treasury Board employees. Both sides are at the table. The Public Service Alliance of Canada hoping talks will continue through the weekend. The PSAC has been calling for the Prime Minister to get more personally involved. Justin Trudeau says serious offers have been made and he has faith in the process.
1: I have deep faith. In collective bargaining as a process. And we know that our negotiators uh, are putting forward serious offers and uh, working constructively with uh, laborers.
0: King Charles has assumed the honorary title of RCMP Commissioner in Chief after a ceremony at Windsor Castle. The King now has a special officer's sword to mark the RCMP's 150th anniversary, and he has noble a black mare gifted by the force. Noble and other musical ride horses will be part of the King's procession after next weekend's coronation in London. Over the past few months, we have witnessed violent attacks on public transit, not in just one city, but several right across the country. It is shaking the sense of security in transit workers when they show up for their shifts and has many people questioning their own safety when they board a bus or a train. So what can be done about the situation? Earlier this week, I spoke with Marco D'Angelo, the president and the CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Association. Mr. D'Angelo thank you for joining
5: us. Thank you great to be with you.
0: So you know the timing of your your media event certainly has resonance. We've just seen a number of really horrific attacks on transit systems across this country. Before we actually get to the recommendations themselves talk to me about what you've heard about the impact of these kinds of attacks from transit workers but also from transit users.
5: Well, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were able to secure funding to ensure that we had a high level of service so that Canada's essential workers could get to their jobs during the pandemic. Since that is subsiding, ridership began to increase. And right now we're at about 70 to 75 percent of ridership on average returning across Canada. What we don't want to have is fear of taking transit being an impediment to, to, for folks returning uh, to, to transit and taking our services so they can get around their cities. It's what you don't want to have happen, but do you sense that's already happening right now? Well, in, I mean, it's, it's undeniable. Uh, in, in many large uh, cities, uh, there have been incidents of violence in transit, and that's why uh, I, our association worked with uh, seven large systems across Canada to develop a series of recommendations uh, that we think are actionable and doable and we will make our transit systems more secure for folks. Okay,
0: now, now the, 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 the recommendations, they involve action on the municipal level, on the provincial level, on the federal level. Uh, obviously, you, you're making an appeal to Ottawa today, so, so let's begin there. In terms of the federal ask, one of them has to do with a criminal code redefinition. Can you talk to us about that?
5: Sure. Um, Our association, uh, maybe about a a decade ago almost, we started uh, a campaign uh, to amend section 269 of the criminal code. And so at that time, uh, we. Transit operators were included as a protected group, so when it comes to sentencing, that that would be considered um, a factor uh, when a judge would determine the sentence for assault. And what we're asking for today is to have that definition broadened uh, to include all of those who work in transit because it goes beyond operators. We've got maintenance and supervisors and cleaners and customer service people. And we need to make sure uh, that they are protected. We have to provide a safe workplace uh, for our, our employees across the country.
0: Okay, so, so one has to do with the criminal code adjustment, but you know, among the other recommendations, uh, I guess the, a couple of them that goes to the provinces really or it seems just on the surface, is the fact that you note that transit is also, beyond getting people from A to B, being used by others as, uh, as a way to solve homelessness for some, mm-hmm. uh, is a, as a place of refuge for those who are experiencing mental health crisis, mental health issues. Where does the federal government fit into that piece for you?
5: Well, I think that, you know, the federal government certainly can lend support, as well as the provinces, in making sure that there's 24-hour access for those that are experiencing mental health issues or addiction issues. We don't think that transit is the right place uh, for people to, uh, to, to spend their nights, uh, but we know that it, ha- it has been a reality in cities uh, and it's been exacerbated in recent months. And we feel uh, that the provinces can step up to help uh, to ensure that our transit facilities are safe and to connect those people uh, with, with, ha- with housing or with uh, lodging for, for overnight purposes also, during uh, heat waves to um, heating, to cooling centers, and during you know we added some cold snaps this winter as well, that there's a role for provinces to play to help to fund uh, ways to house those that, that need a place to sleep, and all too often they have found uh, public transit to be that realm, and our recommendations I think begin to address that issue and that goes to, to safety for you. Indeed, I mean, we have to have a, We have to have safety for our riders, safety for our customers. It's our it's our duty, and uh, we've been very proud of our of our record over these many years. But we have a unique. Uh, Challenge in different cities with illegal drug use, uh, with with crimes of uh, of assault uh, that are taking place, and we have a, a mental health system across Canada that doesn't seem to be able to to help enough and transit is a, is a point of last resort for too many people and we need to address that. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, a part of this also goes towards security, more, more empowerment for, for, for transit constables, but, but you're also calling for a meeting uh, mm-hmm. uh, of provincial, federal, and municipal uh, leaders to come together to actually tackle this. How far along is that request? What type of response have you had so far?
5: Well, I mean, we've worked with those um, cities that uh, that are most affected by the 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 outbreak of uh, violence during the last uh, couple of months. Uh, but also, we've reached out to Labour and happy to have their support on these recommendations. Um, we've met with, uh, with mayors with, and we're ho- now we are going to come to the table and we invite our federal and provincial transportation uh, ministerial counterparts uh, to meet with us to help us to find actionable, affordable and solutions that can happen uh, in the near term so that people can get around their communities without fear for their personal safety.
0: And what type of timeline do you hope does accomplishes this?
5: Well, I mean, we've got the report out today. We know, it, you know, not all 27 recommendations can happen overnight. But it's definitely been a conversation starter. And we're very interested in following up on these recommendations with the provinces and with the federal government on them. Marco D'Angelo, thank you very much for the time. Okay, thank you very much.
0: And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you on the next Primetime
5: Politics.